0: Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky is a presidential historian. Her book is called The Cabinet. It was on November the 26th, 1791, that George Washington convened his cabinet department secretaries, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, Henry Knox, and Edmund Randolph. And this was the first cabinet meeting. We'll ask Dr. Chervinsky why George Washington waited a full two and a half years into his presidency to call his first cabinet meeting. Lindsay Trevinsky, I I have to read you the little item, the back of your book, The Cabinet, at the bottom of the leaf. It says the jacket art. Uh, And unfortunately, people can't see this, but they can go by your book and see it. It says this image, this is on the front of the book, created for a 1910 Van Damme Cigar Company box label, depicts from left to right Thomas Jefferson, Henry Knox, John Adams, George Washington, and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Why the Van Damme Cigar Company ad? Was that your idea?
1: It wasn't. It was actually the press's brainchild. Um, The challenge with writing a book about the 18th century and people in it is our image options are a little bit reduced. Uh, We certainly have less to choose from than books on the 20th century. And so there are really only two images, maybe three, that have been created putting Washington's cabinet together. And the other two are black and white, and so they went with this one because it offered some color and a little bit more visual interest, even though, as I'm sure we'll discuss, it's not technically historically accurate. Why not? Well, John Adams, who was the vice president for George Washington, never attended a single cabinet meeting. So even though he is in the center of the image on the cover and the subject of my next book, he did not ever attend a single meeting with Washington in his cabinet.
0: What's your next book?
1: The next book is called Making the Presidency, John Adams and the Precedents that Forged the Republic. And it looks at basically what happens after Washington leaves. How does this institution that was so much a creation of him as a person and as a leader work and survive for other people, including the most important norms and precedents and customs that we really treasure as the bedrock of our democracy, including the peaceful transfer of power?
0: when did you start writing this book and researching the cabinet
1: well the cabinet initially was going to be was was really from my dissertation um many moons ago many iterations ago i I wrote the dissertation and i started graduate school in 2012 and then finished in 2017 and then spent the next several years rewriting it about five times which I don't actually recommend as a as a process if you can help it not to write it rewrite it five times, but I really wanted it to be a good story and not read like a dissertation. So it ended up being about seven eight years start to finish, and so this next one was four years. So I feel like I'm making progress.
0: Where did you do uh, your PhD work?
1: The University of California, Davis. I worked with Alan Taylor, who actually halfway through went to the University of Virginia, and um, that worked out well for me because I was planning to move to the East Coast anyway to do all my research because all of the early American records are pretty much on the East Coast. And so technically the degree is from UC Davis, but that's who I worked with.
0: Where do you live now and what do you do now besides write books?
1: I live uh, just outside Washington, DC. I live in Alexandria, Virginia. And um, most of my primary projects are books, but I also do podcasts and a lot of media commentary on the historical origins of our contemporary moment, Um, lots of op eds and article writing and some teaching on the side. So sort of a mishmash of lots of different things, but it's very exciting. And I'm never bored, which is something that I'm very grateful for, because I would not I would not want a boring career.
0: Let's talk about the cover. What, What do you think of George Washington?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that I came away from this book with, was just such an incredible amount of respect for who he was. He wasn't always likable. Uh, He certainly wasn't always cuddly or warm or even necessarily accessible for 21st century audiences. But he was so devoted to the nation and had such a high concept of service and duty and civic virtue, and was willing to sacrifice so much for so many years, understanding that he was really the only person that could often be in a particular position. And I think that the respect that I have for that, and then the ability to know when not to say something, the ability to know when to walk away, those are gifts that we are not often blessed with in political leaders. And so I just have incredible respect for who he was, um even if i that comes with a very keen understanding of his limitations
0: what about thomas jefferson
1: thomas jefferson is a little bit uh trickier for me um i i i understand how important he was he really in a lot of ways was one of the dominant figures for 50 years of american history and wrote language wrote words that have inspired centuries of people to pursue a more free and independent life. But I personally find him kind of frustrating. Um, He is aloof to me in a way that some of the others aren't I find it very annoying that he proclaimed all these values and lived up to almost none of them. And so um, and he could be extraordinary, extraordinarily duplicitous in a way that few others could do. So sometimes personally, I find him more frustrating, even if I understand his importance in the American story.
0: What was his job in that first cabinet?
1: So Thomas Jefferson was the first Secretary of State, which was a really essential position for Washington because Washington had obviously had a ton of military knowledge. He was better positioned to deal with things like war and militia reform than almost anyone. But he had only been out of the country once, and that was as a teenager when he went to Barbados. So he had never been to places like Versailles or the Quarter of St. James or any of the other European capitals. And he didn't speak French, which was the language of diplomacy at the time. So he really needed a secretary of state who did have that experience and could provide that sort of insight and expertise that he knew he was lacking and was seeking out very intentionally. So Jefferson was, even when he disagreed with Washington, he was a treasured part of the cabinet.
0: Did he ever fight in any war? Jefferson? Yes.
1: No, Thomas Jefferson never fought in a war. He was the governor of Virginia during the revolution. He served two terms and they sort of ended in disrepute because he uh, was very unfortunate to be the governor when the British invaded the state twice. And the state did not have the resources or was not equipped to defend itself. So that reflected very poorly on Jefferson. And at one point, he had to flee to avoid capture. And that really led to charges of cowardice, which he was never officially charged with, but they did linger on really for the rest of his political career. Uh, But he was not a militaristic person. He was not interested in any way in conflict. In fact, he abhorred conflict and worked really hard to avoid it. And so, um, whether it was interpersonal conflict or full-skill warfare.
0: I just was, when I was reading your book, I was thinking, and it never crossed my mind before, is you had George Washington in the cabinet and Henry Knox in the cabinet and Alexander Hamilton in the cabinet, but here's a guy that's in the cabinet and never saw war and everybody else did. Do you think that made a difference back then? Because you say in your book, that Thomas Jefferson hated Alexander Hamilton and Alexander Hamilton hated Thomas Jefferson.
1: I do think it made a difference. They came into the cabinet with, Jefferson and Hamilton came into the cabinet with, I think, respect for one another, but they always had very different views of how the nation should evolve who should be the nation's closest allies what the government's priorities should be what the size of the government should be and i think that that only was exacerbated by their time together. They became convinced that the other was a mortal threat to the future of the Republic. And it was partly because they could never get away from each other. They were constantly in meetings. They were in Philadelphia together. And Philadelphia was a very small city at the time. But I do think a big part of it was also those personal differences. And they were reflected in things like their backgrounds. Jefferson was born very privileged family, very elite. Hamilton, of course, was orphaned by the time he was 12 and really had to make his own way. And then also their presentations of masculinity of what it meant to be an American man. And for Hamilton, that was absolutely shaped by his military experience and the concept of military honor, and being willing to fight for the nation. And he was convinced that Jefferson really lacked a lot of those things. Whereas Jefferson's vision of sort of virtuous Republicanism or virtuous Republican manhood was much more, I think, ideological. It was much more based on the Enlightenment values. It was much more based on his time in Europe. And so they had this clash from the very beginning, and they really just were like oil and water in the cabinet all the time.
0: What do you think of Alexander Hamilton?
1: Alexander Hamilton, I think, is... Hundred pounds of personality in a twenty-five pound bag. Uh, he is. He was. He was absolutely brilliant. There's no doubt. He had a capacity for work and industry and innovation that was practically unrivaled in the early republic. He was indispensable to Washington in terms of his ability to to manage details and to churn out product and to adapt to what Washington needed and, and adapt to Washington's voice when that was required. He did not always have good judgment, he made some very bad choices, and I think that he was very impetuous, and sometimes quite rash, and that was partly because I think there he was always teetering on the edge of desperation, and not necessarily financial desperation, but he felt that his reputation was always sort of on the brink of destruction. And that led him to make choices that sometimes pushed the reputation over the the cliff rather than surviving.
0: Why has over the years Henry Knox gotten so little attention and who was he and what, what role did he play in the cabinet?
1: Henry Knox was the secretary of war. He was from Maine. He was self-taught. He was a bookseller. He had been one of Washington's most favorite generals during the Revolution, most trusted. He had been the major general of artillery and was incredibly innovative and creative at finding ways to use what little the Americans had to make a difference. And, And Washington adored him for it. He was very genial and apparently could get along with anyone, which was a useful person to have around Washington, who sometimes could be a little bit chilly and a little bit aloof. And I think there are a couple of reasons he has been forgotten. One, his biggest contributions in the cabinet came in the first couple of years, where he was really responsible for managing relations with Native Americans and militia reform. And those subjects have just not taken up as much space in our American memory and our understanding of the administration and their importance. And that's partly because they were handled so effectively that they didn't prove to be lingering issues. The second issue was he had a break with Washington right before he retired in 1794. At this point, Knox had been in public service for 20 years. He had never really been home. He had often received very little pay for that public service. And I think that he was very, very tired. He had also, he and his wife Lucy had lost several of their children. And so I think personally he was really quite worn down. And he received word that his estate in Maine was about to go bankrupt. And he asked Washington for permission to go back to Maine to try and handle it. And this was right as the Whiskey Rebellion was in its most violent phase. And and Washington basically said he really didn't want him to go because he needed him to stay. But if, if, if Knox had to leave, Washington would give his blessing to do so. Knox went to Maine, and then rather than dealing with the issue quickly and returning right away, he dawdled for six weeks. And I think, I don't know, just enjoyed Maine for six weeks, which anyone who's been in Maine in the fall, I guess, can understand wanting to do so. But Washington was in this major crisis and desperately needed his secretary of war there. And Knox let him down. And so when Knox did finally come back, they sort of patched things up, but it was never the same. And so as a result, over the next several years, when Washington needed someone and called upon someone, it was not going to be Knox. And I do think that's a big piece. The final part of his reputation that the reason he's kind of been written out of the story is so much of the first draft of history was written by Jefferson. Jefferson left copious records of this time period. And because he was was the author of the Declaration of Independence and his successors, James Madison and James Monroe, followed him as president, sort of his version of history won out. And in his letters, he dismissed Knox as Hamilton's lackey because they always agreed not perhaps acknowledging that they often agreed because they had many of the same experiences. They had been in the war together, they had seen Congress's inability to provide goods and funds and act as a vibrant governing force, and so had come to many of the same positions, but honestly, and and hard won um, through their experience and through their sacrifice.
0: To prepare yourself for writing this book, and subsequent to that where have you been in your own work history that uh, has helped your education
1: so i think there were a couple of places that really shaped my ability to to assess this history i have read history since i was a little kid i always loved history i loved historical fiction before i really understood what history as a genre was and anytime we did a trip my mom always insisted we do some, something cultural. So it had to be either a museum or a historic site. So I have a picture of myself in chain mail and a metal helmet from Jamestown when I was like five. And I think being in all of those places, especially when you're little and you're when you're reading, it's hard to sort of visualize what the world is. I think when you go to those places, it shapes your historical imagination. It allows you to see what life looked like. And I do believe that that was sort of foundational to my love and passion for history. I had a phenomenal mentor in college. His name was Tyler Anbinder. He is a fantastic Civil War historian and really was one of the people who taught me how to write. That was pretty foundational. Grad school, of course, was hugely important. And um, Alan Taylor is a brilliant writer and insisted that other people be as well. So he was he was tough, but uh, very helpful in figuring those things out. I then worked at the White House Historical Association for... Um, several years after, after my postdoctoral fellowship. And I think that position was really essential for me because I spent a lot of time studying the history of the White House as a place, as a symbol, as a home, and was actually in the White House a fair amount and understood its collections. And that gave me a much better sense of the presidency as so much larger than just one person, so much larger in American culture and American legacy. Um, but also on the world stage and its importance as a political powerhouse. And so as I have continued my scholarship, I always think of the presidency as so much more than just the person in the office.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in California. So my the history that was around me was, was not this type of history, but we did a lot of traveling and I got to see a lot of really great places.
0: Where did you go to undergrad?
1: I went to George Washington University. So I came back to DC for, for college and then I've moved around all over the country since then, but keep coming back. It's, it's got, it's in me and it is home.
0: Why did it take uh, George Washington two and a half years to have his first cabinet meeting? And where was it physically?
1: Washington took two and a half years to create the cabinet because the delegates at the Constitutional Convention had been quite explicit that there was not supposed to be a cabinet. They had considered several proposals for different types of what they called executive councils, and they had rejected all of them because they believed that the British cabinet was really to blame for all of the corruption and the cronyism that they had seen in the British system and that they had believed really led to the revolution. And so they were looking to ensure that there was more transparency at the highest levels of government. There was responsibility for decision making, and they were trying to remove any potential temptation of corruption and cronyism. So they rejected all of these proposals. Washington was the president of the Constitutional Convention. And so he knew exactly what had been intended, and he had seen them reject these proposals. And so was very wary of trying not to then recreate that system. However, the options that were made available to the president, one, visiting with the Senate as a Council of Foreign Affairs, and two, obtaining written advice from the department secretaries, were inefficient and didn't really meet the demands of governing when faced with these huge new unprecedented challenges with few models to follow. And so Washington really tried to stick to those options before really coming to the conclusion that he needed something like the cabinet. And then he based it on because there wasn't a model to follow. He really based that on his Council of War experience from the Revolution.
0: But where was that first meeting?
1: The first meeting was at the president's house in Philadelphia on November 26th, 1791. Unfortunately, the building no longer exists. There is a National Park Service site there that shows part of the first floor floor plan, but you can't actually see the room. Although I do know that uh, Mount Vernon is currently working on a new project to create a 3D version that you can actually explore of the president's house. So at some point that will be available and will be an amazing resource.
0: In in this book, you talk about a lot of other people and we can't cover everything as you know in in this uh, brief discussion but i'm going to jump way beyond where we are to edmund randolph and what's the story and who was he and when did he serve in the cabinet and what's the story of him being charged with treason
1: Yes, Edmund Randolph. So I think he was probably the figure that I knew the least about going in, and I ended up finding one of the most compelling by the time I was done. Edmund Randolph was from the very extensive Randolph family in Virginia. If you look pretty much anywhere in the family trees, there are lots of Randolphs. That was was his family. He served as an aide-de-camp early in the war for Washington, so they knew each other from the very beginning. He then went back to Virginia and held pretty much every position you can possibly imagine, including Governor of Virginia, while also serving as Washington's private lawyer for nearly two decades. He was the first attorney general, so Washington appointed him attorney general, and at the time, there wasn't a Department of Justice, so the attorney general was really like an advisor, a constitutional advisor for the cabinet and the president. He was the Attorney General for the first couple of years, and then he became the Secretary of State once Thomas Jefferson had uh, retired. Randolph was widely considered to be one of the best legal minds in the entire country and was genuinely respected by everyone in the Cabinet. Jefferson sometimes wrote in snide fashion that the Cabinet deliberations would split two and a half votes to one and a half votes, referring to Randolph's tendency to kind of go back and forth. He was basically saying that Randolph was wishy-washy. But actually, what I think it was is just that Randolph didn't always agree with Jefferson, and Jefferson felt like he really should agree with him all the time. And so he tended to have a snarky comment about that. So once uh, Randolph was Secretary of State, Jefferson had retired, Knox had retired, and Hamilton left the cabinet in early 1795. And so Randolph was really Washington's preferred. Advisor in the administration. And the other people in the cabinet, Timothy Pickering, Oliver Wolcott Jr., and um, William Bradford, were fine, but they were really not Washington's first choices. In fact, Washington eventually had to ask Timothy, asked seven people to be the Secretary of State once Randolph left before finally settling on Timothy Pickering. So these were not, you know, top shelf candidates. And there was, I think, an antagonism between Randolph and the rest, because the rest were really very firm Federalists. At this point, we started to have the two sort of baby political parties. There's the Federalists, there's the Jeffersonian Republicans. Randolph was fairly apolitical. He was maybe a Republican, but very moderate. And he also, of course, had Washington's ear. And so I think the other secretaries resented that. At some point, Pickering got his hands on a series of documents that had come from the French minister who was in the United States. They had gone through a series of machinations. So the French letter went was captured by a British ship and was handed over to Pickering. Now, Pickering translated them, but his French translation was quite terrible. And he something like Randolph said something like If the French invested a great deal of money, they could influence the outcome of American events. And it seems like what he was saying was during the Whiskey Rebellion, if the French invested in the rebels, they could influence the outcome of events. But how Pickering interpreted that as if the French paid Randolph a bribe, he would swing the outcome in a particular way. He handed these letters over to Washington, who, again, did not speak or read French. So he was really relying on Pickering's translation. And rather than giving Randolph the benefit of the doubt, Washington confronted him with the other secretaries present and made it very clear that he had lost trust in Randolph. And Randolph, I think because... He cared so much about his personal honor at, at this time, it was very important, but also because he had been so close to Washington, was so hurt by this decision that he just abruptly resigned and left the position immediately without trying to explain what had happened or defend himself. He later then tried to do so, but it was difficult without access to all the documents and and so much time had already passed. And so Randolph and Washington basically never spoke again. They had been friends for decades. And later, I do think that Washington sort of regretted how it went, but too much water had passed under the bridge for him to be able to take back that decision.
0: All right, this is a very important question. In the beginning of your book, you have a dedication to Jake. I'll ask you who that is. And to JQDA, who's Jake? So
1: Jake is my husband. Um, He has lived through the cabinet and all of the other books, so he deserves first billing. JQDA stands for John Quincy Dog Adams. My dog's name is John Quincy Dog Adams, and Quincy for short. But I firmly believe that a dog is the best thing For a writer to have because they don't care if you've had a good day or a bad day they insist on a schedule and they insist that you get up and take breaks so he is essential to all of my writing
0: what's the hardest thing for you in studying history researching history and writing history
1: um i think the hardest part is when you can't get the answer to a question Um, There are you're you're limited by what sources are available to you and what you can piece together sort of with a reasonable amount of certainty. And sometimes you're just not going to get the answer to a question. It's just not going to be available. And as someone who is intensely curious and really likes to have answers, I really like mystery books where you find out, you know, who is responsible and know what the ending is going to be and and that's just not how history works and sometimes that drives me crazy and you have to be willing to walk away because you could research forever but you have to be willing to walk away at a certain point
0: what was your favorite source for this research
1: my favorite source is a annotated copy of the constitution that is in the mount vernon collections washington ordered a copy of the constitution and all of the laws passed in each session of congress and then he had it bound and he had a special copy made for each year he was president and in basically after the first full year he received it and then he annotated it basically as he was preparing his first address to congress as required by the constitution and in it he made a number of notations that demonstrate how he is thinking about executive power and his role and his responsibilities and his his duties in real time. And he's trying to think creatively about what he can do and what he must do. And that source was in a private collection until I believe 2010 or 2012. And then it was purchased by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association for a very astronomical fee, but they were trying to keep it in the United States. The other bidder was, I think, in the Middle East. And so they went above and beyond what they were anticipating paying. Um, And now it is one of their prized possessions. Um, But because it was in private hands, most people didn't know about it and didn't see it until fairly recently.
0: Why do you think no one else has done a book like this? As you say, it's the first time that anybody has studied this part of the executive branch.
1: I think that because the first cabinet secretaries were in office from the very beginning, and because every president has had a cabinet, everyone just kind of assumed that it was inevitable, or it was always there. And then I think once people sort of got to perhaps question it, they assumed that someone else had written it, because that was a fairly long time ago. And there have been a lot of history books since 1789. And in fact, I was so convinced that someone else surely must have written this that I I searched and I searched and I searched and I asked my advisor to search because I was terrified that I was missing something. And then once we were both fairly convinced that no one had, I then spent a couple of years crossing my fingers and hoping no one would beat me to it.
0: You make a note that in in 1793, uh, there were 51 cabinet meetings. Has there been any president that you know of since then that had 51 cabinet meetings in any given year?
1: I don't know about exactly 51, but I know that that Lincoln. yeah. Yeah. So Lincoln met with his cabinet twice a week, every week quite regularly, so that would be over 100 meetings. And Theodore Roosevelt met weekly with his cabinet as well. And this was, of course, when the cabinet was a little bit smaller than it is today, and the cabinet secretaries were really still the president's primary advisors. But those two presidents had put together a very useful cabinet, and one that they were really able to rely upon, and then manage those personalities very well, which is a, a skill that not all presidents have.
0: I count fifty fifteen 15 members of today's cabinet, the president. What, there
1: are 15 members, although, of course, the number can kind of fluctuate depending on what is designated a cabinet level position by any given president.
0: Has Joseph Biden ever had a cabinet meeting that you know of?
1: He has had a cabinet meeting. I believe that he had his first one for something like four months into the administration. Of course, when he came into office, COVID was still a, a real concern. But I believe that he had the first cabinet meeting about four months in.
0: Why do the current presidents not use the cabinet like others have? it? You just mentioned like Teddy Roosevelt, Abe Lincoln, and of course, George Washington.
1: I think size is certainly part of the reason. It's difficult to have really meaningful conversations with 15 or more people present. And sometimes there are subjects that touch on multiple departments, but rarely do they touch on all 15. And so what you often see now is you'll see a president have kind of like working groups with certain sections of the cabinet, depending on what they're talking about. So, for example, if a president was talking about climate change, he certainly would have John Kerry, who is the current climate czar. He would probably have the secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, because he has spoken eloquently about the threat of climate change to the military um, and maybe the secretary of treasury to talk about what sort of financial options would be available to combat climate change but it wouldn't necessarily make sense to have everyone involved because that wouldn't be a good use of time i think for everybody there
0: since you wrote this book you've come out with another book that you helped edit called mm-hmm. "Morning the presidents what is that
1: So, Mourning the Presidents is a collection that was co-edited by myself and Matthew Costello that explores what was the American response, what were the mourning rituals when a president dies from george washington to george hw bush and how a president's legacy is shaped um, by their death and then by things that come after them it was very much inspired by the reaction we saw to george hw bush's passing and a real sense that a lot of the commentary and the reflections on Bush 41 were shaped by the current moment we were living in at that point, by the political environment and the political culture that we were experiencing. And there was a real sense of nostalgia or, or loss for a kind of a world gone by. And while I think that the tributes given to him were, were accurate, they in some ways said more about us than they did about him. And so we thought, you know, that's a really interesting phenomenon. I wonder if that's a unique thing or if that has happened over several generations. And so we decided to put together a panel of experts that would be able to address different time periods, different presidents, and produced the volume.
0: Who has fussed over their funeral while they were alive more than any other president?
1: So, Partly, this is a a product of the fact that now presidents are expected to really have a plan. Basically, from day one that they're in office, there's a plan that you know, should they die in office, what will happen then? And then it it is, of course, altered and evolves as they leave office. I think because he had one of the lengthier post-presidential tenures, George H.W. Bush probably gave his the most attention. They would have regular meetings to sort of see if any updates were required. He didn't particularly enjoy those meetings because, frankly, who would enjoy talking all the time about your own demise, although he did really have a sense of humor about it. One of my favorite anecdotes from the volume came when they were discussing what would be served on the train that would be carrying his casket from Houston to College Station, and the family would be on the train as well. And so they asked what he wanted to be served to the guests. And he said, I don't care. I'm not going to be eating. You guys pick what you want, which I think is shows a great sense of humor about sort of the absurdity of the whole situation.
0: What's your thought? What are your own thoughts about what's happened to the funerals uh, of presidents?
1: I think that they are a bit problematic. I think that they are un-Republican and this is little r Republican. In a republic or a democracy, when you have a nation that is a rule of laws and not a rule of man, the president, of course, is vaulted to this very special position while they're in office and they hold extraordinary power and privileges. But then they're supposed to go back to being an average citizen or at least relatively average or, or average under the law. And so When we have these celebrations, they often look a whole lot like the celebrations for monarchs when they pass away. And I think that that can be dangerous because it can cause us to think of the president as somehow more than human, as almost like a demigod-like, and that can cause us to have different expectations, to give them different privileges under the rule of law that are not necessarily appropriate. but. acknowledge that there is service involved and there are are great acts of leadership and so i think it might be more appropriate for the american people to celebrate great acts as opposed to an entire lifetime because you know do we really need to celebrate their their childhood if they you know everyone has a childhood i'm not sure we need to celebrate that but whereas we could celebrate the Civil Rights Act or Washington's returning of his commission or stepping down from the presidency. There are a lot of things that we could celebrate in our in our story and acknowledge their greatness, but not necessarily acknowledge their somehow otherworldly status.
0: I'm going to ask you a question. It sounds it's going to sound like it's political. I don't mean it to be at all. But what would happen in this country if Donald Trump dies and I know that there's an election coming up. Let's act like that, Don, That hasn't happened. But right now, what do you think would happen if he died? And what would this town do about that?
1: I think it would be a very complicated process. I think there would be those that would want to celebrate him as one of the greatest presidents in American history. There would be those that would have no interest in celebrating him at all and would probably be relieved that he had passed. I think there would be where the tension would lie is it has become customary for presidents to often lie in state, to have almost a week-long experience, to to have multiple different services. And I think that there would be a pretty vocal opposition to him lying in state because of the events of January 6th.
0: And right now, if it happened, you have a Republican House and a, a Democrat uh, Senate. What would that what would you know? And all all the you've studied so much about the divisions in our history. What do you think would happen there?
1: Yeah, it would be very, very messy. Um, the moments where we have been this divided because we have been divided before, of course, either presidents haven't died at that moment, which has sort of been our good fortune, or presidents, presidential mourning has not necessarily been on this level, or presidents have had the good sense to request something more modest. So a couple of examples come to mind. When Andrew Johnson died, he was very unpopular with most of the North, with all of the Republicans at the time. He had started to gain some popularity in the South. But at this point, with the exception of people like Abraham Lincoln, and then later, following like James Garfield, who was also assassinated, generally mourning procedures were more modest and were tended to be more local. And he did die in Tennessee, so he just had local services. And there wasn't this question of, does he deserve a national day of mourning or national commemoration? More recently, once these big ceremonies have become part of our public practice, Richard Nixon, who was very polarizing, although he did live for quite some time after the events of Watergate and his resignation, he did request a more modest service. And so he basically took the question off the table and didn't force the American people or Congress to decide how they were going to come out on this issue. And so I think that I don't want to put words in his mouth, but my guess is that former President Trump would not make that same decision. And so Congress would be forced to make a choice. And because we are currently divided with a Democratic Senate and a Republican House, I think it would be extraordinarily messy.
0: As you know, we've had 46 different presidencies. One man, Grover Cleveland, had two of those. But the reason I bring that up is in your book that you've done called "Morning the Presidents with Matthew Costello, you do just 12 presidents. I'll quickly go through George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Zachary Taylor, Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, Theodore Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, FDR, JFK, Ronald Reagan, George Herbert Walker, Bush. Why those 12 and not the others?
1: Well, I think we would have loved to have done all of them, but that would have been a, an impossibly long book for, for us and for the press. We wanted to do a combination of people that, of presidents that the American people knew and were familiar with. So you can't really have a book on mourning and not have a book on, not have a chapter on Lincoln or Kennedy. It just would have felt, I think, weird. But we also wanted to contribute new things to the story. We wanted to allow people to learn something. And so we were trying to balance between lesser known presidents and well known presidents. And then, as a trained early Americanist, initially, I was insistent that we have chronological balance, because I think that sometimes my colleagues in the 20th century forget that we had centuries before then. So I really wanted to have 19th history, 19th century history as well. And then we also wanted to have Um, A variety of different writers, so we wanted to have people that represented all the different ways to be historians. So, graduate students, public historians, people that work at presidential sites, and so really became sort of like a a piecemeal trying to put together a quilt of that checked all those boxes, and this was what we ended up with.
0: Back to the cabinet book, what was um, what was the historical or the historians' reaction to your book? Were any any surprises to you once the book was published?
1: I've been really gratified by the response. I think most historians have acknowledge that they didn't really know that this was part of the story and were perhaps shocked that no one had written it before. So that surprise has been gratifying because I I had the same feeling. Um, I think that it is taught in some classes, which I really appreciate, and I think has become part of the sort of the dialogue around the early Republic, which is really all we can hope for. And. Is still read, but I still hear from readers sort of outside the Academy, regular readers, when they pick up the book. And there's really just nothing better for an author than hearing from someone who actually enjoyed your work.
0: You focused on three major issues, neutrality crisis, Jay Treaty and the Whiskey Rebellion. What was the neutrality crisis and how did the cabinet handle it?
1: The neutrality crisis happened in 1793 when France declared war on Great Britain and the conflict quickly spiraled into basically an international war. And the United States was trying to figure out how to stay out of it because it had no business getting into another war. It was just really beginning to recover from the revolution and it didn't have a army or navy anyways. So even if it wanted to fight, it had nothing with which to do so. But that's actually a very complicated question. Neutrality has a lot of legal implications for both domestic and international actors. And the cabinet worked closely with Washington to try and figure out how to craft rules that would govern the behavior of American citizens, but also govern the behavior of international actors on domestic soil. And because this was brand new, it took months and months and months of months to try and figure out where the line was between neutral and aggressive behavior. And that's when they had those 51 meetings, which was the high point of Washington's cabinet activity in his presidency. And they ended up basically addressing the issue in two ways. First, they requested the recall of the French minister, who was citizen Charles Edmond Genet, and they did so because he had his own ideas about what American foreign policy should be and basically blatantly disregarding Washington's policy and and doing lots of things that were not neutral in American in American ports and that was highly problematic. And when France agreed to that recall, it basically was a tacit acknowledgment that the United States had the right to establish its own foreign policy and expect that foreign actors would abide by it. The second thing that the cabinet did was to come up with eight rules of neutrality which basically said what american citizens could and could not do what was neutral policy what was neutral behavior in american ports and they sent those rules to congress and congress codified them and that law of neutrality actually was on the books up through the civil war whenever the united states was not at war and that was really helpful because it established statutory regulations about if someone broke that policy what the repercussions or the consequences would be what court case would what court would hear that case what prosecutor would bring it things like that that hadn't been established up to that point and were really essential to regulating american behavior
0: when did the senate have to approve cabinet officers
1: the Senate had to approve cabinet officers when they were nominated. That is not in the Constitution. So the Constitution says that there will be department secretaries, but it does not say how many or what type or how they are to be selected or chosen. That was up to the first federal Congress. The first federal Congress, in the, basically in the first year, they created the executive departments and determined how they were going to be selected. They created the Bill of Rights and they created the judicial system. So no session of Congress has ever done more than this first one. And as they were creating the executive departments, they established the Department of State, War and Treasury, and then the Attorney General. And they provided that the president would nominate them and the Senate had to confirm them. They left it sort of fuzzy how they would be removed, um, but sort of alluded to the fact that the president could remove them without Senate approval
0: why did back to the three areas we're talking about why did george washington get so upset over how he was treated in regard to the jay treaty and what was the jay treaty
1: the jay treaty was negotiated in 1794 by chief justice john jay and great britain and it was negotiated to resolve some of the lingering tensions from the revolution some of the issues that in theory had been resolved by the treaty of paris in 1783 but really hadn't worked it was very unpopular in the south because it a lot of Southerners felt that they had been sold out, that Jay had sold out their interests in the negotiations. Now, I personally believe that Jay really did the best that he could because the United States at this point had zero negotiating leverage. They had zero power. And so the fact that Great Britain gave up anything was really a testament to his ability to negotiate He sent the treaty back to the United States, the Senate ratified it in 1795, and Washington signed it. And then it went to the House of Representatives, where the House had to raise funds to implement one of the clauses of the treaty. But because it was so unpopular in the South and with Republicans, and these are, again, Jeffersonian Republicans, they decided that they would take that as an opportunity to try and scuttle the treaty. And so they requested all of the executive papers pertaining to the negotiations and the instructions because they were determined that it would embarrass Washington and then therefore maybe he would withdraw the treaty. Instead, Washington asserted executive privilege for the first time. He had previously complied with congressional requests for executive papers. And so in his letter, he reminded them that he respected their right to oversight, and he had complied with previous requests. But this particular example was one in which what we would kind of think of as a national security reason, but for diplomacy, secrecy is required. The other side needs to have trust that we won't air all of the discussions. And so privacy and secrecy was important. He then said two other things, which I think are very illuminating. He said, however, if this was an impeachment proceeding, I would turn over the papers because basically that is a higher bar of oversight. So he is drawing a distinction between normal congressional oversight and impeachment oversight, which I think is really fascinating. He then says, I was at the Constitutional Convention and I was there when we were deciding how foreign policy was to be crafted. And the Senate was given a role and the president was given a role and the House was given no position. You are trying to usurp extra constitutional authority, he said to the House. And if you don't believe me, I have the journals from the Constitutional Convention in the Department of State offices, and I'm happy to share them with you. So it was really the ultimate sort of mic drop moment, if you will, to use 21st century slang. He was calling their bluff and in doing so, throwing the full weight of his stature behind the treaty and um, resistance in the House really collapsed overnight.
0: When the eight years of the George Washington presidency was over, what did he think of his cabinet?
1: By that point, he really wasn't wild about the cabinet. The people that were in the administration were his second and third choices or his second and third appointees. They were sometimes his seventh choice in the case of Timothy Pickering. He felt that it had been very difficult to get people into these positions because the positions were, were very hard work. They were not very well paid. They weren't particularly prestigious. They required people to be from home for a really long time and, and travel was quite arduous. And so he understood. But as a result, he convened far fewer cabinet meetings in his final years. He preferred one-on-one consultations or sending letters back and forth with advisors outside the cabinet as opposed to the people that were actually in the administration. And that, as a result, really left an essential precedent for those that followed. It meant that the cabinet didn't have an institutionalized right to be a part of the decision-making process. They can offer their, their input, they can offer their advice, but they can't demand that the president take it. And so... As a result, presidents can really pick and choose who they want their closest advisor to be. And sometimes that's cabinet members, sometimes it's former colleagues, sometimes it's family members, Um, but those relationships generally take place without congressional oversight. And that all goes back to Washington.
0: Why have I not heard you mention, and I don't know, you might have in the book, I don't remember, James Madison?
1: James Madison does show up in the book. He is, was one of Washington's, um, closest advisors during the Constitutional Convention and during the early years of Washington's presidency. He, he does a couple of things which I think are really fabulous. So he helped Washington write his first inaugural address and his first address to Congress. He then wrote Congress's response back to Washington. And then he wrote Washington's response back to Congress. He was basically having a conversation with himself, (laughs) uh, which is really amusing to to think about. Um, He was an essential advisor, especially for the first year, while the cabinet was still sort of coming into fruition and, and people were taking their positions. He started to split with Washington on a lot of issues, in particular, the financial issues that Hamilton had proposed, like uh, legislation that would require the federal government to assume the state's debts from the revolution and the formation of a national bank. And Washington took that disagreement somewhat personally and they were not as close going forward. However, in 1792, Washington was thinking about resigning after the first term. He wanted to go home and he asked Madison to craft a farewell address. Now, that version of it never made it into the public because Washington, of course, stayed for another four years. But that draft was then used as the basis for what Hamilton revised in 1796 when Washington did actually publish a farewell address.
0: Have you ever put those those addresses that James Madison wrote on behalf of George Washington and the Congress back and forth, side by side and analyze them?
1: I have. They're they're really quite amusing because Madison, was really, Madison and Hamilton were really good about writing in a way that felt authentic to Washington. They could really kind of adopt his voice, but there are certain things that you can see that Madison does, certain values and certain tendencies and certain principles that he espouses that do show up time and time again.
0: What was the Whiskey Rebellion and what role did the cabinet play in that? Oh.
1: The Whiskey Rebellion took place in the summer of 1794. Congress had passed an excise tax on whiskey in 1791, and it was immediately unpopular in the western regions of states like Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Virginia, and more. And initially, the protests had been peaceful and then by early summer 1794 they turned violent when protesters burned down the home of a tax collector and exchanged fire with federal troops washington had four options he could leave it to pennsylvania to decide how to handle the situation he could wait for congress to come back in session that fall because congress tended to be out of session when anything interesting happened He could convene an emergency session of Congress to call up the army or to come up with a military solution. Or he could use a recently passed law that allowed the president to call up the state militias in the event of a domestic insurrection or foreign invasion when Congress was not around. So he met with the cabinet asking them what to do, and they really shaped his response. They encouraged him to send a peace commission to try and come up with a diplomatic solution. And then when that failed, they encouraged him to call up the local militias to crush the rebellion, which is what he ended up doing. And then the cabinet, we talked a little bit about Henry Knox's absence during that that part. Alexander Hamilton was the acting Secretary of War, as well as the Secretary of Treasury when Knox was out of town. And so he led the militia troops to meet with the rebels, uh, along with General Lighthouse, Light Horse Harry Lee, who's, who was actually Henry Lee. Uh, the two of them led the troops to crush the rebellion Uh, That fall, which which they did. And most of the rebels that were arrested, the cases were dismissed due to lack of evidence. Those that were charged and convicted, Washington ultimately ended up pardoning because it really wasn't about the punishment. It was about the principle of The taxes were passed by Congress, which was a constitutional process. And so there was a constitutional remedy, which was that the people could vote for different representatives in the next election. And the government had the right to pass and to enforce taxes.
0: From all your work during this about this period, who is your favorite character?
1: Um. Well, if if you had asked me that, you know, several, a couple of years ago, when I was really still, before I had started writing this book, I think I probably would have said um, Henry Knox, because I think that he is really underappreciated. And the fact that Washington wanted him around so much should tell us how valuable he actually was. However, now that I'm, now that I've finished the second book, um, which will be out next year, I really like John Adams. He, I think he's also really underappreciated. He is very accessible for 21st century audiences. He's very human. Um, his flaws, which he was acutely aware of, I find very relatable. And of course, his correspondence with his wife is unparalleled. And so that resource makes it hard not to really enjoy him.
0: What month does the book come out?
1: August 2024.
0: Is it hard, by the way, having a book finished and have to sit here for a year to wait for it to come out (laughs)
1: yes it's really hard (laughs) um i mean i so i still have to probably go through another round of revisions and then there's you know copy edits and page proofs but then once those are in you're just like sitting there waiting um and it's it's very hard because people are like oh i can't wait to see it i'm like i can't wait for you to see it either i can't wait to get it out there
0: any other books on the list that you want to do as the years go by
1: um, at some point, there will probably be a John Quincy Adams book. Um, I, I feel like that's almost obligatory if my dog's name is John Quincy Adams. Um, and I, I think he is also one of those pivotal figures in American history that his life spans the Battle of Bunker Hill to Lincoln, and he almost is a stand-in for the evolution of the American nation. So that, that story I want to explore. Um, I think there are probably some other cabinet stories that I, I think are worth considering. FDR had two cabinets, basically. He had his New Deal cabinet and then he had his war cabinet. And he managed his cabinet in a way that few other presidents did in that he intentionally pitted the secretaries against each other, which usually is a recipe for disaster and, and somehow worked. So I think those are a couple of things that are on the horizon. And then I'm noodling around with a few other ideas, but hopefully by the time the next book comes out, I'll have a contract signed and can share officially what I will be doing next.
0: Our guest has been Dr. Lindsay Travinsky. She's got uh, one book, one major book that's been published called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, and another one that she is co-editor of called Mourning the Presidents. Thank you very much for your time and talking with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.